This is just a content warning that this episode contains mention of rape, assault, and sexual violence. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that always cites its sources. And if we don't, we just yell, Citation needed! (laughs) Yeah. Today we have Hope, Laura, Kellen, and Ambria. For this episode, we've brought on two very special guests. So special. Annie Shields is engagement editor at The Nation and co-chair of the Uptown Bronx branch of the New York City DSA. And Sarah Jaffe is a fellow at the Nation Institute and host of the Belabored Podcast. You may also have heard about her book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, which was published in 2016. We've got a great, (laughs) we have a great conversation coming up, so we're not going to waste any more time with introductions. Let's get to it. All right, so we are here with Annie and Sarah, and I think we wanted to get started talking about an article that Sarah wrote, published this fall, called Donald Trump's War on the Working Class in Dame Magazine. Say hello, Sarah and Annie. Yes. Hello, hello. Season of the bitch. (laughs) Thank you. This is wonderful. Yes. Yay. So, Sarah, you write in your article about how, for many, the women's strike last March wasn't actually a strike and didn't have quite the labor tone you'd expect with the word strike involved. And as today is MLK Day, and we know that Dr. King was very aware of labor dynamics in the United States, Can you talk about how various, quote unquote, progressive days or movements have been co-opted by more liberal ideologies than actual leftism (laughs) and kind of describe how it's been to cover these sorts of issues? So I think the thing that was so striking about the women's strike, um, yes, I said that, (laughs) um, was that. You know, on the one hand, this was a call for a challenge to feminism for the the 1%, the sort of Sheryl Sandberg lean-in feminism that really took over and was really prominent for a while in like the, you know, up until this year, I think, or last year, really. And so what happened around the women's strike is that people called for a strike. People said, Mm -hmm. like, we're going to strike to show the value of women's work. And what happened was like a lot of people had a lot of feelings about that (laughs) and their feelings were really complicated and that's fine. But also what ends up happening with that is like everybody had a lot of feelings about like whether we have too much privilege to strike and whether if we go on strike, then like, is it a real strike if we're just taking a day off and Mm. all like this whole bunch of complicated stuff where like it was fascinating because on the one hand, like a bunch of leftists and had called for a strike that mainstream people felt they felt called by enough that they felt obligated to sort of come up with ways to get out of having to do it right and so I thought that was really interesting and and it'll be interesting to see what happens this year um because there's another women's strike being planned for March 8th. And we'll have to see whether there's the same sort of reaction around like, oh, my God, if I don't participate in this, I'm a bad feminist. So I have to come up with a reason why I'm not. (laughs) And, you know, it's I was just saying to my partner over dinner that, like, the funny thing about MLK Day at this point is that, like, I don't follow a lot of people who say bad liberal or bad conservative things about MLK. So I just see people sort of arguing, like, no, MLK was a socialist. And I'm like, yes, I know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can I just say what a blessing that must be? It's really funny, though, right? Because this is how that happens when you've, like, curated your social media in a certain way. Yeah. That, like, I just see, like, the backlash to the backlash. I grew up in the South, and that is, like, the only context in which anybody I knew from home, like, references MLK. It's, like, to tell people to behave better because Martin Luther King would be ashamed of your protests. Right. Exactly. I I do want to note that I saw some of the, you know, during the women's strike, I saw some of the sort of uh, hot takes that striking is a privilege. 
Right. And yeah. this this super relates to Sarah's article, Donald Trump's War on the Working Class. She talks about this in it. You talk about it in it. But I, I have to say most of the people, like, I think everybody who I saw make that claim was a white woman. I, I do have to note because I think women of color understand that it's not a privilege to strike because, as you say in your article, it's a risk to strike, but it's a risk you take because you're in the position where that's what you're left with. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and the idea that like a, str- like the, the article that started me off was like Francie in prose and it was not related to the actual March 8th women's strike, but it was this thing that was like, everybody who can do it without getting fired should go on strike. And I'm like, but that's not really a strike then. That's just mm. like taking a day off. And like, mm. you know, that's, that's fine. Like, I think there's moments for mass symbolic protest even if you're not really doing, if you're not really sort of taking the risk of of going on strike. But it was interesting that like strike had been so sort of argued down that like people couldn't imagine that you would go on strike for a reason to win something mm-hmm. against your employer, but that it would like obviously be this symbolic thing that only certain people were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super fascinating. So I'm going to quote a little piece of your (laughs) article. Uh, You write, quote, but class is not, as I have written elsewhere, a baseball cap. It is a relation of power. It is one's position in the economy and in the world. It is shaped by one's gender and race and immigration status, one's sexuality, gender expression and ability, and many other things besides, unquote. Can you describe why this is so important for people to understand and the ramifications that ripple out from this understanding. It's a weird way to ask it. It's more, I loved that you brought it up in that way. And and if you could kind of like speak to that, I guess. Yeah. So I say some version of this thing, like all of the time. Um, I was just writing another version of it in another article today that I was working on (laughs) because like we have, like the same way that sort of striking has been argued down to to be this sort of meaningless thing, we've sort of argued class down to be just like another sort of social category, another like identity box that you can check. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like Donald Trump can put on a baseball cap. This is where this came from. It came from um, an interview that I did with Nancy Eisenberg where we were talking about Trump's class drag. And how he puts on his Make America Great Again trucker hat. And then he's, you know, he can speak to the working class. And like, <laughs> I mean, and we can talk. For That's like, how that probably, works. Yeah. Well, and we could talk for like probably ever about the how insulting it is to actual working class people that media people assume that being racist equals talking like working class people. Mm. Um, but like. So what we have to understand when we say like class is we're not talking about like this is the leftover category that like white men have because they don't have other identity character categories. Mm-hmm. We're talking about power and we're talking about where you fit in a hierarchical society that determines, you know, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore and many other people would say, like your life chances are determined by all of these things. And so what what it, it just drives me bonkers that like even people on the left, not that I'm going to name any names, will talk <laughs> about class like it's just another box that you check. Name like, names. That- Call them out. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want a list. Uh, it'd be a long list. And so- I do. <laughs> right, I, have a, I have kind of a, a follow-up question to that. Yeah. As you were talking, I was just wondering if you think it's possible for people broadly to self-report on class without having a broader understanding of the system or, you know, like how accurate is, is a person's own perception of their class? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of um, aspirational ideology, especially in America. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of that. One of the things that I found really interesting in the last few years is I've been sort of tracking how people self-identify and it's changing. And there's a little bit of this in my book and there's a little bit of this in various articles that I've written. But people who self-identify as working class is actually going up, which is crazy in this country because like we don't have a great tradition of talking about being working class and sort of identifying as working class in the same way that other countries do. I mean, America has a socialist tradition, but it, it was never as powerful as like the British socialist tradition or like, you know, various other European countries to say nothing of countries that actually had socialist governments. 
So people tend to be very aware of where they actually fit, even if, you know, you get like sort of aspirational voting or aspirational whatever. If you if you start to dig into people about like where you are, how much power do you actually have? I think people tend to know and working class people certainly tend to know. So this was really striking around like Ferguson when I was reporting in St. Louis, people who were involved in the protests around Mike Brown were very aware of the economic dimension of what was going on there. I quote in my book this video of a guy who was standing in front of the the quick trip after it had burned and was saying, like, they don't pay attention to our demands unless we cost them some money. So we have to figure out ways to cost them some money. So I tend to think that, like, people know where they are. People know how they're positioned. People know what power they have and they don't have. And the real reason that we don't see sort of mass political action is people don't know how to do that. And they don't see a way for it to win. When people start to see a way for things to win, then they will join them. That's an excellent way of putting it. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Sarah, about what kind of challenges we would face in having true mass strikes. Um, and (laughs) so many. Yeah. And and how that compares to the feasibility of strikes in the U.S. in the past. And I'd also like to highlight something you say in your article, which you already kind of mentioned. And the quote is, if the boss gives you permission to stay home, you're no longer on strike. I mean, the idea of the real mass strike, I mean, I, I like many people, probably reread Rosa Luxemburg a lot this year. It was a year for reading the classics. You know, I read Gramsci, <laughs> I read Rosa Luxemburg, I, I reread Max Weber, which is a whole other set of things. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm <laughs> so, <laughs> we're talking to a bunch of nerds here. So, yeah. In the spirit of capitalism, it was a thing that I needed to reread. Um, but now thinking about like what a mass strike looks like in the U.S. in 2018. Also, how did it get to be 2018? I'm old. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a real big question because one of the things that's really hard for workers who are thinking about striking is that like a bigger and bigger part of the working class in this country is in the service industry and a bigger and bigger part, in fact, is in like direct like care service, which makes it really hard to go on strike, right? If you're a home care worker and the person who you take care of depends on you for everything, for feeding themselves or going to the bathroom, like how do you manage to go on strike? And home care workers have gone on strike and it takes a, a phenomenal amount of work or teachers. I know Ambria is a teacher in training. I know that like y'all have thought about this, about the way that when teachers go on strike, they are immediately accused of not caring about the kids and the way that the Chicago teachers union was able to really counteract this. And that like other unions who are inspired by them have been able to counteract this is really laying the groundwork for saying like, actually we're striking because we care about the kids and this and this and this reasons that are the ways that we show you that we care. Oh, it's so gendered too, because yeah, absolutely because so much work of care is done by women, right. and it's so uniquely positioned to be criticized from this sort of vantage point of like, oh, the people who are refusing to care for people are heartless, and people are being hurt by it. Which I think you know that's been used against all sorts of people, even people working in factories. Like, oh, they're they're not yeah. producing food that people need, but I think it's, it's especially poignant for the kind of work that women tend to do. And I also appreciate that your article kind of highlights the fact that when we say working class, there's often an assumed white along with that. And we picture like dudes in hard hats and that's really not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we think about like, what would a mass strike look like? We have to think about what does a strike for care workers look like? And I was just going to quote Megan Erickson's book um, at y'all and then a piece that she actually edited that I wrote a while ago. But so in Megan's book, Class War, she talks about this and she's like, when, you know, when women, when teachers go on strike, they're not just seen as, as bad workers, but as bad people, as bad women, Mm. right? that you're actually failing at being a woman because being a woman is supposed to be to like care for children, right? Um, That you're actually a bad person because you're neglecting your duties to these other people. And so I actually wrote a piece that Megan edited uh, a few years ago at at Jacobin called The Day Without 
care that was talking about just the question of like, what does it mean to go on strike when you are not just producing things at a factory, but you're actually producing other humans and you're actually caring for other humans. What does that look like? What is shutting down production when you're not producing, but when it's reproductive labor, when it's social reproduction that you're shutting down? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big question. I don't know the answer to it, but um, (laughs) yeah, this is like critical, but although I think you could make the same, I don't know. I don't want to get into like police unions or firefighters unions, but the idea that like, those are all, those are, I guess, you know, public services, you know, Mm -hmm so to speak, you know, not to, not to like get into the police union thing, but, um, <laughs> but I don't think you hear police unions or firefighters unions ever attacked or, you know, talked about the way that you hear teachers unions in particular, like that's sort of like yeah. the main union that's vilified in, in just like the main, the mainstream well, probably because they go on strike. I mean, I guess nurses go on strike as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I don't really have much. Yeah. yeah. Smart stuff to add to that, but it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting question for sure. Yeah. Well, Annie, I wanted to pivot to you a little bit and hear about your work, which I, as I understand it right now, is very different from what Sarah is doing. So you, as we mentioned in the intro, are the engagement editor at The Nation. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what it means to be an engagement editor, like what that job is. Certainly. So that's sort of a made-up job. It's not a real thing. Uh, it's just a, it's a very real thing. You have it. Well, so it I mean, I, I well, I have a job, uh, and we needed to call it something. So that's what the name we came up with. To be perfectly honest with you, because we, the Nation, and I work at the Nation Magazine, which is, I think actually Sarah was an intern there, maybe a year or two. Was and I have heard a rumor that Sarah is the one who first got us on, uh, got the Nation on Twitter. Is that the right? nation was on Twitter, but I was the one who like took it off of being just an RSS feed and started actually tweeting. It is true. I am also responsible for getting Katrina Vandenhuvel on Twitter. That's the thing. Okay. Yes. So yeah. that's that, that was really well done because it made my life a lot easier uh, when I came to work there about six years ago. So, you know, when I first started, I was actually called community editor, which was just sort of like the person that did social media. They didn't ever have a person doing that on staff. So I did the social media. I did the email newsletter. And that was six years ago. So while my job has changed a lot, the need to get that stuff done hasn't. So I still do social media and stuff like that. I, I mean, now I edit a lot of freelance writers. I edit a couple of our regular writers. One in particular that people might know of is Dave Zyron. He's our sports editor, but he writes for the website a lot. And so I'm his editor on the website, uh, which is a really fun, you know, I learned so much about football that I would never know. James <laughs> editor, um, he's awesome. Yeah, he's great. So, um, you know, I spend my day probably half of my day is edit- editing things. The other half is maintaining the homepage, keeping you know, just keeping track of like production of things. It's very unglamorous and sort of boring stuff. But you know, when a story comes in and needs to go up right away, and you know, the, the interns are, are really instrumental in making sure that just editorial production, copy editing process goes uh, smoothly. So that's, that's kind of the bulk of it. And then I work with some, a few freelancers. I try to be, I try not to take on more than I can handle because I tend to be very, I tend to be choosy about like taking pitches because I don't, don't want to, you know, I want to make sure that I'm being careful about what I'm bringing to the table in the nation. I'm, I have other things to do besides just edit. So um, it's sort of like a nice extra thing that I get, I get to do. So when I do, I try to choose writers that maybe aren't, you know, super experienced yet, but I think like have a really good idea or there's something really important to say. And that's not really a good explanation of why it's called engagement editor, but <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. So the idea is, I guess, like I'm sort of the person that pays attention to whether or not people are engaged, so to speak, with our content, as they call it. Um, so like how long are people spending on the website? Are they leaving right away? Is the story, you know, getting like 10 seconds and then people are leaving? Mm. That's the problem. Why, why might that be? Is this like, you know, is it a design thing? Is it an editorial thing? You know, those kinds of questions are the ones that we all sort of work together to ask. It's, it's a lot of collaboration. So, you know, the web team that I'm a part of is now sort of integrated into the entire editorial staff, which was not the case when I started six years ago. It was very much like, print and web and now everything's kind of everyone sort of has the same skills and does the same stuff except for i don't i don't have any of the print skills i don't know how i don't even have the, like the thing you need to open the magazine to look at what it looks like on my computer um so i have no idea how that works but um so yeah i mean i don't know if that yeah that's absolutely that's awesome 
that actually kind of like segues into another question I had for you because when you were talking about the authors that you, the freelance authors that you work with, it sounds like you have a fair amount of choice. And we, you know, somewhat creepily or, or not, whatever, went back <laughs> a few years into the archive and checked out some of the stuff that you wrote when you were still sort of writing for the nation. And you, had a couple of really interesting articles oh my about God. things like <laughs> fast food workers striking in St. Louis and like pro-choice rallies in Texas, both of which are, you know, there's labor rights, bodily autonomy, very interesting to us as socialist feminists. And we were kind of wondering, or I was at least, I don't want to speak for anybody else. You can. <laughs> Laura and I specifically <laughs> were wondering... Uh, <laughs> How, as you've sort of moved into this editorial role, have you gotten like more freedom to sort of decide what direction you want to take, at least in your little corner of the nation? Yeah, you know, absolutely. So that's something that I really value about my job. You know, there are people who have been there for decades who have incredible expertise, especially on like, you know, international politics that, you know, sort of cover those beats. And then we have an editor who's really focused on reproductive uh, rights and reproductive justice. One of my other co-workers is, he edits Michelle Chen. You probably have read some of her stuff. She's a labor reporter. And so he does stuff with a lot of labor stuff, a lot of like ICE, prison, immigration, stuff like that. Uh, for me, I have, yeah, we have a ton of freedom. Um, it's a really great advantage of the job. So I guess the reason I, I did that story on the St. Louis fast food worker strike is basically we just we wanted to cover it, but we didn't have any writers to cover it, no reporters in St. Louis. And I happened to, I'm from St. Louis. So I used to work with Job of Justice when I was in college on a restaurant workers campaign. Um, so I have I had a lot of contacts in St. Louis who were like, you know, able to connect me with some of the people. So it was easy for me to write a story about awesome. that that particular strike. Yeah, and prior to, so yes, there's a lot of flexibility where I work. We have a lot of freedom, we have a lot of choices in terms of what we do as long as, you know, we certainly discuss things and we collaborate, but um, if there's an area that you're particularly interested in, you're encouraged to seek out excellent reporters and writers on that topic. And then before I worked at The Nation, my, my uh, first job out of college was actually an internship at Ms. Magazine. So I used to write a lot, quite a lot for that, for the website for Ms. when I was very young. So I hope, I'm so glad to hear that you did not look at any of that stuff. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I like did a thing about Justin Bieber lyrics that was like, oh, I can't even believe that's, but it's like on the internet forever. So um, that would definitely I'm, glad that, I'm into it. I'm glad that didn't come up. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, um, I guess if I ever had like a serious beat, it was like the definition of rape, basically, which is a very specific thing. But the way that we have defined sexual violence as like a legal term, as a criminal term, and as like a social construct throughout the history of the United States in particular. So the Feminist Majority Foundation, which was the pub publisher of Ms. When I was working there, I did a campaign to get the FBI to change the definition of forcible rape in response to, if you remember that bill that changed the definition of rape, like HR, I forget what it was, but it was in 2010, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it was going to, you know, it was the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act, and they wanted to change the law that says you can't get an abortion, you can't get federal funding for an abortion unless you've been raped they wanted to add forcible to the, so, and it was a huge, I don't know if you remember, but it was a really big sort of controversy at the time. Totally. So in the, in the months following, the organization in Washington, D.C. that published Ms. started this campaign that was aimed at the FBI, the Department of Justice, and their, their uniform crime report. Every year, they count the number of rapes and murders and everything all over the country, and then I guess they determine a variety of things based on that data. And they wanted, so the, the definition was of rape in that particular report was forcible rape, which is based on English common law, which doesn't include, I don't even think you're, if you rape your spouse, it's included. It didn't include any men um, or anyone that wasn't, you know, identified as a woman, but just a very specific sort of definition. So um, that's something that I was involved in, you know, helping because that was my job at the time. And I learned a bit, uh, quite a bit, and I wrote a book review, but over the course of uh, a review of a book about the history of the definition of rape. So that's the most recent thing I published by uh, Estelle Friedman. So that was like sort of a very specific area, but it's very interesting now. I think I, I look back on that a lot in the, in the most in recent months 
with the this like sort of me too like sexual harassment sexual abuse like all of the news that's and the news and commentary around you know, we all know the harvey weinstein and then from there just like domino effect of just people being outed for doing a variety of different inappropriate things and what i've but I'm reflecting on that. I think a lot about how much we rely on the criminal justice or like our legal de- legal system's definition of what constitutes rape or assault or this or that to like determine whether or not something was inappropriate or to prove like, hey, this rises to the level of actual sexual assault according to the law. So like it's a big deal. And of course, that's valid and true. But I think I think people are being forced to grapple with things that are a little bit confusing. And I think it's showing the limited utility of legal definitions of uh, sexual violence and what quali- what qualifies as rape or assault. Because ultimately, in my view, I think that's sort of insufficient for really grappling with the problem of like sexual violence and misogyny and patriarchy and, you know, everyday microaggressions. And like, there's a whole sort of universe of problems that I guess we're able to sort of think about things in a new way, not push back against people who say things like, you know, I guess Damon was like, well, there's a difference between, you know, rape and I don't know what he said, but like, and everyone was really upset. And everybody was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's like, like, yeah, that's obviously true. Like there's a difference between red and blue. Like sometimes I fall down, sometimes I trip. Like it's not the same thing. That's not the point. It, like, so yeah, yeah, I think we need to, I mean, for me, looking back on the writing I did about like this long history from like colonial times to the Victorian era to Jim Crow to today and how we define what is a real sexual assault and like what is something that rises to the level of needing to do something about. I think that we're in a moment where that's shifting again. And I don't really, I don't really think that the criminal justice system is the place that's going to ever like really be able to create justice, at least the way we have, the way it's constructed right now. That being said, I don't know like what, you know, I I think we're a long way from sort of a real restorative justice model being employed. So I think it's like we're in an interesting and sort of an interesting transitional or I don't know, gray area in terms of thinking and talking about this stuff that reminds me of the original sort of beat that I had when I first got started in in journalism. Very cool. Very cool cool indeed. (laughs) Very very cool indeed. I think we're going to shift to talking a little bit about Sarah's book. So if y'all don't know, Sarah wrote this amazing book called Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Americans in Revolt, sorry. And because I'm a nerd and currently unemployed, I made it my mission to read this book before this episode. And it's awesome. Well, thank you. you. Yeah. (laughs) My publisher thanks you too. (laughs) So without getting too into the nitty gritty, because y'all should still go out and get this book and read it. I wanted to ask some questions about some key things you bring up. Your background and expertise is generally in labor coverage, as we, you know, spoke about with your, with the article we discussed. And yet your book is really on revolutionary moments and how they relate to one another in the past 10 years or so. Um, And of course that has a labor dimension, but can you talk about that shift? Like what kind of brought you to this whole project that created this book? Yeah. So partly I, let me go back to the beginning of my sort of full-time journalism career was in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis. So I was in journalism school. I was trying to figure out like what the hell I was going to do with my life. And then all of a sudden, you know, capitalism is trying to kill itself. And I am trying to figure (laughs) out what it does, you know, like it periodically does. And I'm trying to figure out what a credit default swap is and why it just (laughs) killed the economy. And if I'm ever going to get a job. So from there, I was an intern at The Nation, as Andy said, and then I was I worked for Laura Flanders at what at the time was called Grit TV. Now it's called The Laura Flanders Show. And I met a whole bunch of people who were doing a whole bunch of different kinds of organizing. And then I got a job at Alternet, which we can talk about the problems with that a little bit later oh. if we want to get back into the Me Too situation. But for now... I was hired to be the labor reporter and then Occupy Wall Street sort of happened on mm. my watch. And so I'm covering these things. And and from the beginning of the financial crisis, it I had been and a lot of us had been wondering, like, where's the revolution, guys? Why Why is the left not sort of in the streets? And it was in the streets to some degree. And I write about that in the book. But it was mm-hmm. not anywhere to the degree that the right was, you know, the Tea Party happened. And, you know, a lot of people on the sort of center left to slightly further left 
we're really kind of giving Obama a chance, which didn't really work out that way for us. Right, um, right. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking about Occupy. I was thinking about all these other things that were happening and they kept happening. And so I was trying to figure out, all right, I went from trying to figure out, like, why isn't there a massive protest movement to like, okay, now we've got one, what's happening with it? And then like, oh, this one's fading, but now we've got another one because Black Lives Matter started, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the um, Fight for 15 strikes started happening, the, the Walmart strikes started happening. And so somewhere in there, like there were individual books and articles written about all of these things, but nobody had sort of written about all these things together as a moment in history, as a moment in sort of history of capitalism. So I was like, well, I guess I should write that book. And so I did. And way to go. It's it's, casual. It's a question of like, I'm interested in labor because work is where we spend most of our lives, but also because I'm interested in destroying the capitalist mode of production. And (laughs) as everybody will tell you, the working class is kind of key in that. But also, (laughs) as we were saying before, it's really hard to think about what mass strikes and things look like. And so we're all trying to figure out what is the movement that can change and or destroy the capitalist mode of production in 2018 with the kinds of work we have, the kinds of technology that we have, and the abilities that we do and don't have to disrupt things. Mm, that's amazing. <laughs> so we haven't quite destroyed the capitalist mode of production yet, but I live in hope. We're working yes. on that. Um, <laughs> another thing that was really striking to me was that you use the rhetoric of the powerful versus the powerless when it comes to people in revolt rather than any sort of right versus left divide. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and whether you think that there are times when the left right distinctions matter, not in like the political party sense, but in an ideological sense, or if you think at the end of the day, it really comes down to disenfranchisement. I mean, I think if you're on the left, then you should be on the side of the people with less power. Although, I mean, we have power when we come together, but that's a whole other story. That if the history of the world is the history of class struggle, which is true, that that we are on the side of the oppressed class, right? And that means that instead of trying to think about this as like an ideological battle that we can argue our way out of, because we can't, we have to think of this as a conflict that involves power. And so that's one way of saying this. The other way of saying this is that a lot of the people that I was interviewing didn't identify as being the left. They didn't see this as their like the fight totally. of the left versus the right. They saw this as like, we're screwed and we have to get unscrewed. And they were increasingly recognizing that a small group of very rich people at the top are the ones who are screwing them. Right. And so... That is, you know, whether you have somebody like Reverend Barber who will, you know, say like, you know, this left right stuff is not for us. And that's partly also because he's the head of a nonprofit organization and he has to say stuff like that because otherwise they can lose their nonprofit status. (laughs) (laughs) But also also that, that, you know, when you're talking to a lot of people, they're not saying like, and then I joined the left. They're saying like, hey, I want to get better wages, right? Mm -hmm. I want $15 an hour. I want my student debt to go away. I want, like, they're not thinking about themselves as, like, becoming part of whatever. And that's shifting a little bit because we're seeing more people, you know, obviously DSA has 30-something thousand members now, and Annie, I'm sure, can talk a lot more about what's going on within DSA. But we're seeing the identification first and foremost in class terms, not in... Mm -hmm sort of left-right terms, especially because there's a lot of people who just like, when they think in those terms, they think Democrats are Republicans and people don't want to be either of those things right now because both right. of those things suck. Yes. <laughs> Agree. Here, here. And then I kind of wanted to wrap up us speaking about your book. I know we didn't actually scratch the surface of stuff that you <laughs> covered, but that's because people should read it. But anyway, that's so it's a whole book. Yeah. <laughs> After covering these moments for a better part of a decade, can you describe generally what you see as our way out of this disaster hellscape that we live in, or at least like where you've seen hope? The science of dialectical materialism. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yes. I had to get that in there. Yes. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Okay. But besides that, I mean, I, I, you know, I hate to say like hope because it becomes this thing that like, 
you know, you, you either have to be hopeful or whatever. I mildly hated myself as I wrote this (laughs) question. It's it's more (laughs) that like, I felt hopeful reading your book and that's why. But I'm, I was going to say, like, I'm a terminal political optimist. It's terrible. Like, I get it from John Nichols. Um, John Nichols is yes. always like, like, John, 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 everything is terrible. And he's like, it's okay. Everything's great. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> but like, so the thing that the thing right now that is the most hopeful to me is that like, like I was just saying, like, people are pissed and people are pissed at a lot of times the right people and like they're turning to the wrong solutions like good lord donald trump is president but (laughs) um, but like there's a poll that i've been stuck on since election day where like 75 percent of the people polled in this exit poll said we need a strong leader to take america back from the rich and powerful and like I mean, that means that a bunch of people voted for Donald Trump and only slightly less laughably Hillary Clinton to assume that they could do that thing, which is not true. But like people are looking for that answer because they know that there is a tiny handful of people that have too much power and too much stuff and they're wrecking shit for the rest of us. And that is... You know, that's the the first step is diagnosing the problem. And then the other thing that gives me hope is that people continue to just be willing to, like, get out in the streets and, and raise some hell. Like today, it's Martin Luther King Day, and I'm looking at pictures of protests in front of Trump Tower and protests in the streets all over the country. There's a prison strike that kicked off today in Florida. Mm-hmm. Like, I just I can't look at the Internet without finding out, like, five new things. And I wish I had time to write about more of them. I also have an incurable case of optimism and it kind of took me a while to contract this awful disease. (laughs) But I think, you know, it went from looking at all the times that uh, oppression has worked and and then recognizing that like throughout history, it's never worked as completely as the oppressors would like it to. And in all of the histories that you read, and this is one reason that I really appreciate Sylvia Federici, uh, among other people, but it's just when you read about the histories of people, if you're reading everything about it, you see that they've never been entirely held down. You know, like the the attempts to assimilate, for example, indigenous people has never 100% worked. People always resist. And I, I would say that gives me hope. Yeah. There's a reason we say the history is of class struggle and not just of oppression, right? That like, it's, yes. it's always been a fight. It's always a struggle. And yeah, that's a good sign. Wow. Well, I think that is a really great way to uh, segue out of this part of the conversation, head to some tunes, and we'll be right back.
Okay, welcome back. Something that we wanted to dive in with you guys about is the idea of objectivity in journalism. And we're particularly interested in this because y'all are both really outspoken. Annie is co-chair of the bum branch of New York DSA. And I think a lot of people have this idea of journalism that it's supposed to be sort of totally detached from the real world, sort of floating in an ether, ether somewhere. Um, <laughs> and we were interested- <laughs> we were just sort of hearing about how you guys think through those ideals and then also your own sort of political convictions and how you live them out in your lives. I have nothing to say about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel very lucky because at the nation, it's sort of, we have a lot of freedom and we're, I think we all agree among the editors and the everyone business staff that objectivity is just not a real thing that you can actually ever achieve. It's not really even worth trying to achieve like fairness and accuracy and that kind of stuff is important. Like there are facts that we can you know deal with. We, we can deal with the same set of facts, but there's really no way to objectively interpret what we see as facts. Um, we certainly do fact checking and uh, make sure that all of our stories are airtight before we go to press but we have a perspective on the world, which I think is what makes magazines interesting. So for that reason, I have, you know, there's no conflict between my work and like my political activities. Although also part of that, something that protects that is, is my union. So just mm -hmm. quick shout out to the News Guild of New York. Um, I'm, a, I'm a union member. The nation is a union shop. And like the New York Times and Reuters are are also members and you know a lot of those journalists have been really target I mean it's actually like a, a scary and risky thing to be political at all when you work for some place that's like a you know purportedly neutral objective newspaper so that is a, is a, a thing that I think is a concern for people and it's a workers to me it's like a workers rights issue or like a, mm. a labor issue because I think people should have freedom of speech even if they have a job that is you know to report the news. But yeah, so the nation, we, to be honest, I think it would be strange if I had the opposite, if I was like some sort of, you know, conservative person, I don't know <laughs> how I would fit in or if they would even, I mean, I'm sure they would, give, if I did my job well, they would let me do it, I hope. But it just is sort of a good fit. I have learned a lot from working at a magazine that publishes things that have a sort of a left perspective on the world. And I've applied those lessons or those, you know, that insight to my own politics. And that's helped me ultimately at this point, I joined DSA in, uh, I think, December after the election. Uh, and everyone thinks it's great. The, now, like, we just published a cover story yes. on DSA, which was really, I thought, very interesting and very well done. Yeah. And I know that some people found it to be, you know, it, it wasn't like a, a fluff piece. It wasn't like a soft piece on the, it did like dig into a lot of the politics but like for example I would not work on a story like that so that would be one example of a time that my personal you know involvement in this organization would become a conflict of interest or whatever but um other than that it's not really a problem yeah so I think objectivity is bullshit but also <laughs> I think like we all have our own little rules for figuring out what we should and shouldn't report on. Sometimes I use them as blatant excuses. Like I refused to cover the election at all in 2016 because a guy I used to date was working on the Sanders campaign. Um, not just a guy <laughs> I used to date. It's not, it's really not fair of me to describe him like that. He's a very good <laughs> friend of mine, but, and I hate covering elections, like poisonously hate covering elections. So I was just like, Nope, can't do it. Nope. Not writing about it. Nope. 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 <laughs> not doing it. And whatever, because yeah. But also, like, you know, I'm not a member of any socialist or other organization. I donate to various things. I have a couple of places that I do monthly donations, but I try to keep that mostly separate from what I cover. Not that anybody who follows me, you know, like Fox News got really mad at me this year for tweeting that the carceral state is white supremacist, um, mm. which, you know, it was really funny because I'm getting like hate mail and and called racist names and, and whatever and like I you know I emailed my publisher and I was just like hey by the way the alt-right is coming after me right now so um if you can email Amazon and have them take all the one-star reviews down that would be great and they were like oh what did you say and I was like oh I said you know that the, the carceral state is white supremacist and they were like oh so that's right and I'm like yeah, yeah. 
And I said the same thing to like my editor at the New Republic. And he was like, oh, right. That's like what we pay you to say. I was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so luckily, I also have support of the Nation Institute and Nation Books and a variety of publications that pay me to say inflammatory things like racism is real. And <laughs> I thought that was Which is, you know, ridiculous. True. How is that inflammatory? Anyway, okay, I, sorry. I mean, because literally, like, there's somebody whose job it is to sit around and search Twitter for terms like white supremacy and then see if anybody with a blue check mark next to their name said it and then try to, like, whip up some anger and try to get them fired. Um, mm-hmm. It does not work on me, like I said, because I work for people who are not surprised that I think this. But it has worked on professors who are friends of mine. So, you know, it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But yeah, I, you know, I think objectivity is bullshit. So did all my professors in journalism school. So that's real. But also the other thing about objectivity is that you are assumed to be objective if you are sort of an unmarked body, otherwise known as like a white man. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people who have any sort of stake in any of these games by having a marginalized identity of some sort or another, even if that's literally like being a white woman, you're considered, you know, you're not objective. You can't be objective about sexual harassment if you ever worked for a sexual harasser. Well, like newsflash, if I hadn't worked for sexual harassers, I wouldn't have ever had a job. Um, Real. (laughs) Real talk. Well, that's not true. Not all of my bosses have been sexual harassers, just a lot of them. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's this idea of objective is not only like impossible for anyone, yes, including white men, but it's also presumed to be impossible for certain people and not others in a way Mm. that is always racialized and gendered. Totally. I think that leads really well into our next question, which is for both of you again, do y'all find that gender influences how you're perceived and received as a journalist? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it's really helpful, right? Like I went to Indiana to go hang out with the workers at the Carrier and Rexnard plant. And like those guys would tell me things that they would not tell a male journalist. Mm. And it can be very, very easy because people are used to talking about their feelings to women. People sort of feel more comfortable with women. And so I think I regularly get stuff out of people that men in my position don't. Mm. But also, you know, I also get aggressively hit on by people that I'm supposed to be interviewing for a story. Uh, There's, you know, the aforementioned sexual harasser bosses. Um, Yeah. There's definitely moments where I'm in public and, you know, my first name is Sarah. It's fairly common. So what I love to do is introduce myself by first name only and see how people treat me Mm. and watch if it's different when they figure out that they know who I am. Yes. I'd imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that as journalists or as people working in journalism, that a lot of your work is done at a distance. And the workforce in general, of course, is becoming this more and more, you know, people work remotely, um, kind of like we talked about with Uber earlier, but a lot of jobs are are becoming like this. You don't get a ton of face-to-face time with your superiors, um, and you rarely, if ever, talk to your coworkers, if you even know who they are. Um, To what extent has that been the case for either or both of you? And how do you think this impacts your experience as journalists and as women navigating a world of sexism and... uh, navigating this new world of work? That's a really great question. So I think that this might apply to Sarah a little bit more than me as a freelancer. But for my part, I think I speak, you know, I, I'm in the office every day. I don't need to be, but I I mean, well, I, I don't think I need to be, but maybe they want me to be. Uh, I can do it anywhere, but, you know, it's good to show up. So I have, like, really actually very good relationships with my, my colleagues. And I think part of that is just having this culture where we all sort of are interested in similar things and share, you know, sort of a big tent of leftist viewpoints and, and enjoy talking about that stuff and discussing current events and politics. Um, and also because honestly, our union makes us strong, literally, we have a really good shop committee, the committee of people who are representing us or representing the shop in the office are really amazing. And uh, that's something that is really critical and I think it's the the what you're describing is a, a huge challenge to organizing and I don't really know what the answer is to that but I think having personal relationships and it really helps build solidarity so if something goes wrong or some somebody gets in trouble or there's you know god forbid some layoffs or something like that happens 
we can, as a shop, as 30 people, spring into action, call a meeting, develop a plan, and execute it, and you know, fight back, and show up for our coworkers, comrades, whatever you want to call them, um, yeah. in a way that I think is really great. So I feel very fortunate in that respect. And I also, well, I don't want to get into the alternate stuff right now, but, um, or I, I don't want, I don't need to, but like, you can even be, even without, but I think without being in the same office as someone, you, you still like find out that there's, you know, sexual harassment can, that doesn't, is not just contained in like within four walls. Like mm-hmm. these are, these are, you know, issues that affect people and people know about not just from working together day to day. Oh, I'll go there. Last Thursday night, I was having drinks with all of my former alternate coworkers because um, we had succeeded finally in outing and getting our former boss fired. Um, Because, yeah. And so when I worked at Alternet, I worked from home. I work from home now. I am coming to you straight from my sweet, sweet home office in Newburgh, New York. Um, where the only person that I sometimes see for days on end is my boyfriend, Will, and the person who works the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, (laughs) And that is super real. Um, (laughs) But like, so when I worked at Alternet, I worked from home. We didn't have an office, but I still became incredibly close with my coworkers, partly because they're just incredible, wonderful human beings, and partly because our boss was an abusive jerk. And so we banded together because that was the best way to survive working for an abusive jerk. And that is and remains super meaningful. And we did not formally unionize while I worked there, but we still, you know, managed to be close. And when the Me Too moment seemed like it was possible to finally actually get somebody to care about Mm -hmm. the fact that this guy had been a sexual harasser for literal decades, then we did it in an organized fashion, as in we talked to each other, we supported each other, we discussed where the story should be placed. This was really a collective effort of people who had had enough of the bullshit. And as a sort of labor reporter who's working in these conditions, even as I'm covering them, it's sort of interesting. Um, right. I like freelancing. I like not having to go to an office. I enjoy working from home and then going and traveling and spending some of my time sort of out doing field reporting and some of my time holed up like a hermit in my pajamas writing articles and not putting on makeup for a week. (laughs) Those things are fun. So like I have a pretty great setup though because I have a fellowship with the Nation Institute, which means that I have some backstop support. So I'm like not only reliant on what I can freelance at any given time. And I had to work really hard to get to a point where freelancing was a a sustainable living and don't even get me started on my sixth Affordable Care Act health plan in however many years it's been since we started having Affordable Care Act health plans. So, you know, I know I understand sort of the appeal of the be your own boss ideology, even as I understand that it's also bullshit. Yeah, and kind of to expand upon some of what I think Ambry was getting at, and also given that we have a president who uses Twitter so much um, in such an (laughs) unprecedented way, I wanted to ask both of you how you feel social media is changing journalism. And I also was curious if being present on social media personally becomes kind of an extra unpaid part of a journalist's job now. Annie, you want to go first? Sure. You know, that I didn't think about it, and I'm mad. Uh, yeah, it actually is. Uh, no, that's really true. So yeah, I mean, so my first job was to run social media for Ms. Magazine. That was the first thing I was paid to do after my first internship. So I've never worked in this industry at a time that that wasn't not only part of what I did, but like the main thing that I did. So I don't know how to describe how it's changing journalism other than to say what I've observed, which I think is probably not entirely, uh, I'm not seeing the entire picture. I think it's, I think social media is generally good. I don't share the concerns about like the degradation of the discourse. I think the discourse is pretty degraded in general. If <laughs> you'd listen to people talk to each other and like they couldn't say it online, they'd be saying similar things. I think, I think that there is a capitalist, there's something that you see that has to do with our economy and the way that it's structured that rewards ad revenue and other kinds of revenue, which means that we drive people to click on things and view ads. And that's just, like a maddening scramble like everyone's in a, in a race with each other to use the internet in in all of its ways to make money and that's really the problem i think so the problems with social media are the same problems with like you know television like television is fine 
like there's a lot of garbage. I mean, that it just exists so someone can make money. And like, sometimes that's okay. I shouldn't say garbage, but you know what I mean? So I think social media has like changed dramatically and radically. I think it's a very competitive industry right now. And I do think this needing to have your own brand, so to speak, or sort of have a presence and people know who you are from social media is, I mean, it's unfortunate and it's kind of like part of the hustle these days in a way that I think rewards more capitalistic types of processes rather than like quality of investigations or, you know, thoughtfulness or that kind of thing. But I don't think that that's as big of a deal as some people make it out to be. I will say that it's very unfair. I mean, like people will be hired to do jobs just based on the fact that they have like 30,000 Twitter followers. At a certain point, if you have enough followers, people just assume that you're like, must be smart. Like they must have something interesting to say. <laughs> and like, that's not actually the case all the time, in my experience. Um, <laughs> totally. And I know people who don't feel comfortable using it. Like I didn't, I would never have become a Twitter user if not for the fact that I had to do it to like actually get to get a job and do my job and to figure out how it worked. So I think it's, it's an unfortunate byproduct of the evolution of media. And yes, you're right. I should be putting in for uh, overtime because of all the time I spend <laughs> yeah. at night. Uh, maybe we can talk about that at the next contract negotiation. Uh, but in the meantime, you're making some good points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also, my first couple of jobs definitely involved doing social media. And so it's always been sort of part of the journalism lay of the land that I've been part of, but it's also gotten worse. <laughs> like I, I really enjoyed social media early on when like there weren't 8 million people around and sort of everything you say didn't elicit a bunch of jerk comments from random mm. people who are like hating you because I don't know, it's their job. And the hot take economy, which is not just about social media, it's certainly like Katie Royfe had a career before freaking Twitter, but (laughs) the fact that she has like resurfaced right now, um, Mm -hmm. other than the fact that like it will always, always pay well to be an anti-feminist woman is, you know, there, there's a tendency and, and, you know, it's funny because when I worked at alternate, so much of our business model was actually ad driven. And so, so much of our business model was like literally about like how many clicks can you get on this one particular story? And it always made me nuts, even if we were trying to get clicks for a good reason and not because we were just like publishing hate reads. But the thing that, you know, especially the sort of personal essay boom of a few years ago really proved is that like, a lot of people will click on something if it makes them mad. People will share things because it's bad. Like hating on the libs is sort of Twitter <laughs> fun times for the left, which I, I get. But I also I think it has limited utility. Mm. And I think one of the things that I mean, OK, so really short term, you get you publish something that people hate and they click on it a bunch and then you get a bunch of ad dollars. But like medium term, I guess, is what I'm trying to talk about. If you're trying to build a publication or a podcast or a whatever, a personal brand, even though I hate that term, (laughs) you'll get a lot further by getting a solid group of people who like you and want to read everything you write or everything that you publish or everything that you podcast than you will getting people to like really, really get mad at one thing that you do. And so I think the the sort of downside of the really exciting hate read economy is that we build up our institutions by sort of being controversial instead of by actually saying something meaningful or in any way interesting or like I don't know being compassionate human beings which is kind of why I became a socialist um it's also so that the government will make sure that everybody has health care so I don't actually have to like them and feel bad if I don't donate to their GoFundMe but that's another story yeah that's a really great answer. I'm glad I could ask a question that prompted just so much interesting discussion. And I feel a little bad that I made you angry about your unpaid labor, but it's better to know than not know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're getting close on time and moving towards wrapping up. And the last question, I think since we all definitely do seem to have this optimism disease that we've identified, and it seems (laughs) like it's getting worse and not better. Um, we thought we would, we would close. Yes, for sure. hundred percent. We wanted to ask what advice you would give to younger lefties, particularly femme identifying who are looking at getting into journalism as a career. We need you desperately, even (laughs) though it's a miserable, just 
rotten industry to work in, especially <laughs> these days. If you look at Twitter, you can see. And there are wonderful people in it who actually want to support each other and take care of each other and produce good actual journalism and not just like bad takes for hot clicks. I think the most the the best advice that I can give anybody is to find the thing that nobody is writing that you care about that nobody's writing and really focus in on that. Mm. That's really good advice. I'm going to steal advice that someone gave me that I didn't listen to. Um, there's a woman <laughs> named my, um, Maya Shenoir, who is, I think, like the editor yes. of, of Truth Out. When I was younger and at a conference or something and met her for the first time, and I was sort of complaining about my where I worked at the time. It wasn't the nation. I'm not going to say anything else. You can figure it out. Um, <laughs> I, it was like, this is really bad. Like, we're getting screwed. I'm not getting paid enough. And she was like, unionize. And I was like, oh, my God, could get real. And she was like, no, I mean, we did it. We, like, we, we unionized Truth Out. And, like, all of our – I mean, it worked. And I was like, that's – oh, that's that sounds great. But I sort of didn't take it seriously. I didn't think that it was something that was realistic. And uh, looking back, like, I totally could have unionized. Or I could have really scared the people that I worked for. And she was absolutely <laughs> right. Like, she was – you know, she was naming people that were on the board who I know would have never been able – to say no, you know, if I had had the courage to ask, but I was like 24 and I'd been in a union, but I hadn't ever, you know, organized or done actual unionizing on the job. But I think if you find yourself in a workplace that is in any workplace, that's not unionized. I think you should talk to an organizer if you're an employee and if you're employed, you're doing pretty good already. <laughs> so talk to someone from the news guild or the writers guild or any of the other unions that are doing this kind of work across the country and go to a labor notes training to figure out some ways if you haven't been to one like that's a great way to learn how to talk to your coworkers about what's going on in your workplace and then try to unionize your your workplace i think that's one of the most important things you can do in any industry but especially in journalism yes. because it's, it's really growing and it's a great time to do it hell yeah awesome all right. Well, I think that about wraps it up then. Thank y'all so much oh, for coming you out two to talk are amazing. To Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> this was so fun. This was awesome. Thanks, Thank so you. This was great. I'm so excited. Yay. Thank you, really. This is a real, real honor to be Oh, to my be gosh. Asked. Oh, I can't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We are but humble nerds. <laughs> <laughs> That was another episode of Season of the Bitch. As always, you can catch us on Twitter at Season of the Bee. If you have music to share or ideas that you want to float, go ahead and email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Support us on Patreon. We have a bunch of new merch on our website, (gasps) which is cool. And it always helps us if you rate us on iTunes. Help other people find the pod. But only if you're going to give us five stars. Yeah. Otherwise, don't bother. If you don't like us, don't rate us. Don't don't waste your time or ours. <laughs> I mean, just stop I feel listening. like that's like a reasonable request. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I love you guys so much. I love I you. I love too. you. Happy to be here today. Bye. Love you guys. Bye. Bitch.